Shalom, 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 Lakan, Aquafian, peace be unto you, ladies. Welcome back to Woman's Halaka. Uh, I am Shara Yawakana. I realized that I don't always introduce myself. So, Salaklia, uh, sorry for that. But me, I am Shara Yawakana, and I am going to be going over the civil holidays of Purim and the lesser known civil holiday of um, the day of Judas Maccabees, also known as Nicanor, just depending on how you reference it. I apologize right now for any excessive background noise. Like I've said before, I gotta do these and get them in while I can get them in. Uh, I was trying to get this done a while last week didn't happen so uh, I'm trying to squeeze this one in and hopefully Valentine's Day um, before Valentine's Day gets here that's a very ambitious goal so that means I've got to record anytime I can and I have um, something going on here in about four hours <laughs> so I am pushing it to get everything done um, let's see here so um, I'm going over these to, like I said, it is really important for everybody to know what it is they believe, know about the, the holy days or the holidays um, that we celebrate and why we celebrate them, um, because especially when you're new, you do get lots of questions. And when you don't know what it is that you believe, then you're open to a lot of unnecessary criticisms from others. Not that it really matters, but it will save you some undue stress, okay? So the first one um, that I'm going over is, like I said, it's called the Day of Judas Maccabees, or it's also known as Nicanor. Um, this, and it's a civil holiday, um, so I, it's not really a holy day in the respect that the Most High did not give us this day um, in the law. Um, this was uh, this is a commemoration of the Most High's interve intervention in um, the Israelites' lives um, to protect and save us from our enemy. Okay. So he did um, marvelous interventions, and as a result, we said we would always commemorate these days um, from here on out, from the time where they occurred uh, and forevermore, so that we can remember how great the Mosai is and how he can, when we plead for intercession, he can um, do things against great odds for us okay so the f this one like I said this is an odd one because it didn't get its prescribed name they said yeah we're gonna celebrate this day but they didn't say and this is what we're gonna call it so that's why it has two different names and probably why it's a lot lesser known so let's go ahead, I'm gonna dive into it let me just say start off by saying this year, um, the day of Judas Maccabees is on 
February 22nd at evening. So February 22nd evening to February 23rd evening. This is day of Judas Maccabees, okay? And also, the, this day proceeds directly in front of Purim, which will be my next segment, okay? So, like I said, Nicanor or day of Judas, Judas Maccabees is a civil holiday. It was, it's a day that we, as Israelites, as Yasha Alam, uh, implemented. So, and it celebrates the, it celebrates Judah Maccabees. And if you recall, um, if you've gone into the book of Maccabees, um, that is where we find Judah Maccabees. Also the hero and the, the lead, um, warrior and defender of Yasha Allah in the story of Hanukkah or Hanukkah. Okay. Same man. Um, but this is about three years after Hanukkah. Okay. And it is celebrating the defeat of Nicanor, who is, um, I'll get into him for, uh, uh in a minute, but Nicanor is known as an elephant arc meaning master of elephants. So he used elephants in his war, in his, in, in his, in his battles. Okay. Um, and you can only imagine if you're not on level playing field with having your own elephants, that's going to be very intimidating and um, very hard to defeat because of just the sheer size and magnitude and force that these elephants, these, and you know how well elephants can get trained, these trained elephants are in a battle. So you can only imagine this was a huge, huge victory and it did take a lot of intercession from the Most High to accomplish this. Um, but a little bit more background on Nicanor. He was a Syrian Greek so Nicanor was a Syrian, um, but he was, um, the Syrian area was dominated by the Greeks and he was, um, in the Greek military. So he was, um, an officer within the Greek military. And another key player in the story is King Demetrius I, Soter. And he is the nephew of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, who, again, going back to Kanaka, Antiochus IV was the, um, I'm gonna say quote unquote, villain of Kanaka. Again, another Greek person of uh, in power and authority at that time, three years prior to this, uh, these events. So, King Demetrius I, he appointed Nicanor, remember he's the Syrian Greek military leader, officer, uh, and he appointed him to be governor of Judea. Um, and side note, Antiochus IV from Kanaka, he died. And that is why Demetrius I is in power. So since this was three years after Kanaka, the Judites or the Israelites who were led under Judah Maccabees, um, they had already got rededicated and recaptured back the temple. Um, and in doing so, if you recall, they had really reestablished their faith in the Most High because 
um, back during the Hanukkah, they a lot of the Yashar Israelites, Yashar Yalom, a lot of the Israelites had um, kind of forsaken their roots and um, started to assimilate into Greek culture. Um, and then with the de defilement of the temple and the, uh, you know, the praying and the protection that the Most High provided for Judah Maccabees and his soldiers, it really um, reestablished a lot of people's faith in the Most High. And so there was more um, Israelite custom and culture and law being observed uh, due to again, everything that transpired during Kanaka. So, to give you a time frame, Demetrius was born um, in 185 BC, but he reigned from 161 to 150 BC. And as the story goes, um, during his, this is the beginning part of his reign, and um, there is a former high priest named Alcimius. And, like I said, during the he was one of those um, Israelites that had fully assimilated into the Greek culture um, and was then therefore referred to as Hellenized. And he was no longer observant to um, Israelite law or Torah. So mind you, he was a high priest doing all of those things that the high priest does in the temple. But he was no longer in that position. You know, the, the, he didn't, the, the temple had gotten taken over. He kind of got displaced. And when they had rededicated the temple, he wasn't re, reinserted into that position because he wasn't doing the things that a high priest does. And, and, and since he had defiled himself, engaging in Hellenistic activities, he was no longer able to have access to the holy altar, which is pretty important as far as a high priest is concerned. But regardless of that, he wanted to regain his position as high priest. So what does he do? Well, he goes to King Demetrius. Like again, he's new to this. He's relatively new to the whole authoritative position where he's ruling over various territories therefore he's going to be new to the local politics and how things operate and things and and may not have a full understanding of the complete history of what has transpired in recent years so as a result in, in an attempt to get back his position Alcimius brings expensive gifts to king demetrius and coincidentally those expensive gifts just so happened to be um, those things that were used at the temple for solemn purposes. So you can see like his whole mode of operation is off. He's already been defiled. He wants to get the same position and he's using gifts to in favor himself um, by the king and in the hope and using items that are not his that are solemn and supposed to be in the use of honoring the most high and trying to get those and and using those to win favor so you know 
when you're in, when you start off on a bad foundation, it's not going to end good, right? Anyway, when he goes and he takes the gifts and, and tries to entreat um, Demetrius in for favor to get his position back, he lies. Um, and he tells lies about Judah or Judas Maccabees and his followers. And he says that they're seditious and they're warring against the Greek government, um, even despite, you know, the treaty or whatever that they have. And, um, and he says that Judas forcibly removed him, him being Alcimius, from his office of high priest without cause. And he told the new king that um, as long as Judas Maccabees was around, there is going to be no peace. So you can only imagine what that would do. That's going to make the king, who's newly, pretty newly um, established, have fear for his position. And you know, when you have fear of losing your power, you tend to take out those who are threatening it. So essentially, he put a Alcimius put a hit out on Judas Maccabees in order to, and this is what this is that thing that I call that I did the um, this is the work of the flesh that I did recently, and this is the epitome of it, and it is the work of the flesh called strife, where you're sitting back. And you're pulling strings behind closed doors to make things happen, to put somebody else in a lower status. And in this case, he wanted to get rid of him, get rid of Judas Maccabees, and which is going to ultimately result in Alcimius getting an elevated status. And that is the epitome of strife. And this is on a high level because we're talking in life and death consequences here. Moving forward... King Demetrius then, you know, he confers with some friends and the friends um, back up what Alcimius says and therefore Demetrius is um, dead set on getting rid of Judas. So ultimately he accepts the story and sends Nicanor to Judea and puts and establishes installs him as the new governor with the expressed orders to kill Judas that's in 2nd Maccabees 14 verse 13 and uh, FYI I forgot to mention this I'm basically retelling the events from 2nd Maccabees chapter 14 and 15. This is where you're going to find the information on um, the day of Judas Maccabees. All right. So additionally, oh, and additionally, not only was he supposed to kill Judas, but he was supposed to scatter the, the um, supporters of Judas um, obviously, if you kind of scatter everybody, they're not in the collective where they have more power together. They're going to have less power to um, create an additional uprising if they're not together as a unit. And 
going back to the story, Nicanor, he's heard of Judas's. Um, going back to the story, Nicanor, going back to the story, Nicanor has heard of Judas and his followers and their mighty battles going back three years ago from Kanaka. And needless to say, he didn't exactly relish the idea of going against these men because he knew the Most High was with them and he knew that they could um, fight. They could go to battle and they could win. And he didn't want to take that chance with his reputation or with uh, the what it entails in going to battle with someone so strong. And as a result, Nicanor attempts to compromise with Judas, which they did. They came to a compromise. They drew up a treaty. And all in all, they actually developed a really good friendship. A really good friendship. So Judas Maccabees and Nicanor were best buds, okay? And they spent a lot of time together in Jerusalem because Nicanor had Judas come to, to basically stay with him. Um, because they enjoyed he, they enjoyed each other's company so much. Nicanor wanted Judas around, like he was good peoples, um, and he was like, "Well, you know, we're on good terms. I can just, you know, smooth things over with Demetrius, and let's just chill, right? We'll be we'll be best buds forever and ever, best friends forever, right?" Well, not mm, of course not. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing the day of Nicanor, right? Um, Alcimius, who was a hater. He saw that um, Judas and Nicanor had a really good relationship, and he was mad that Judas did not get killed. Again, going back into the strife, he's like, man, my plan didn't work. Let's go with plan B. So, well, it's still plan A, but he reapproached plan A. Um, and came up with another lie. And so Alcimius goes to Demetrius and lies again. And he's, this time he says that Judas is um, plotting against his throne to take it over and to replace him, which wasn't the case. But when, you know, haters gonna hate, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, you know, I shake my head. This is a real life thing, but I shake my head because I just have how wicked it is that people. I shake my head in the same manner as when I was doing the strife episode, is because, you know, like the amount of wickedness that people have to have within themselves to come up with such devious plans and especially to the point where you're trying to get somebody executed. Shaking my head. Anyway, back to the story. Demetrius becomes enraged and he writes Nicanor and he commands him to bring Judas to Antioch for um, to throw him into prison um, and to disregard the peace treaty that uh, Judas and Nicanor had came up with um, even though it had gone unbroken there was no justification for it Nicanor receives the letter from Demetrius 
and like I said, they were best bros, so he was conflicted about, you know, breaking the, the treaty and the friendship, but ultimately, you know, he was under direct pressure from Demetrius, who was um, the power of authority, and he decides to arrest Judah and his followers. So he kind of becomes a little bit more distant in his um, relationship with Judas. And while he was trying to arrange for their arrest, while Judas peeps out that Nicanor is acting shady and more rough with him. And he's like, you know, when people start acting like this, nothing good is going to kind of, nothing good is going to happen from this kind of behavior. So he gets a few of his men and they dip out before Nicanor is able to arrest him. So Nicanor realizes that Judas is gone and he is furious and he goes to the temple looking for him. So he questions the priests. The priests say, we don't know where he is. And Nicanor doesn't believe him. So what he does is he goes into the temple looking for Judas and starts acting a fool and making threats inside the temple. Um, go to 2 Maccabees 14.33. 2 Maccabees 14.33. I'm going to read that real fast. He is Nicanor. So he stretched out his hand. He, who is Nicanor, stretched out his right hand toward the temple and made an oath in this manner. If ye will not deliver me, Judas, as a prisoner, I will lay this temple of Yahweh even with the ground, and I will break down the altar and erect a notable temple unto Bacchus. Do you see what he just did here? He went into the temple and he took his right hand and he pointed it to, to the temple, to the structure and said, if you guys do not deliver Judas to me so I can take him prisoner, I'm going to tear this temple down to the ground and build a new altar better altar, a better temple, and I'm going to dedicate it to Bacchus. If you don't know, Bacchus is where they get Mardi Gras and Carnaval from, and I, I hope to do um, a lesson on that to give you more edification on what Bacchus is or who Bacchus is. Um, so you are empowered with the knowledge of what that is. But think about this for a second. He's threatening to tear down the temple that they just got back three years ago. So you can only imagine the kind of feelings that he's stirring up, like a reliving of the drama and the um, defilement that took place prior to Kanika, the rededication of the temple. So he... I mean, that's fighting words right there, for real. Like, you're you coming in here and you're threatening this, the, the, the holy temple. So, ultimately, you know, the priest didn't know where he was. So, he's, he um, did his recon and find, found out where 
Judas was. And he gathers up an army of um, an army of men. But these men are Israelites. They're forced Judean conscripts. Uh, essentially, they are um, drafted men who are forced to fight for the Greek army. And um, so they're gathered. So essentially, what they are, they're they are. Um, drafted men that are forced to fight for the Greek army and um, so he he, like I said he finds Judas and what he decides to do is that he's going to get the jump on Judas by attacking him on Shabbat but his army are Israelites that follow Shabbat also so they're like, nah, can we really hold off on that because it's the Shabbat, it's a holy day, we should be keeping the holy day. And so Nicanor um, concedes and allows his men to keep Shabbat. Meanwhile, uh, while that's happening, Judas, he's um, camped, encamped with his forces. They have a campsite and they're doing their thing. Uh, during that time frame, he has a vision. And in, in the vision, the murdered high priest, Onias, um, in Hebrew, I think it's Kanania. So Onias visits Judas in, in like a dream or vision and gives him words of encouragement. And he introduces another spirit to Judas um, and that spirit standing with Onias that man turns out to be none other than the prophet Jeremiah and Jeremiah stretches his arm out to Judah and hands him a golden sword and he says take the holy sword as a gift from Yahweh with which you will strike down your adversaries that's in 2nd Maccabees chapter 15 verses 15 and 16. Let me read it real fast. Because uh, I kind of, I gave you a quote, but I'm going to actually read the verses. So 2nd Maccabees chapter 15 verses 15 and 16. So verse 15. Whereupon Jeremiah holding forth his right hand gave to Judas a sword of gold and in giving it spake thus verse 16 take this holy sword a gift from Yahweh with with the which thou shalt wound the adversaries okay so obviously if this were you I mean think about how uplifted and empowered you would feel like oh the most high is with me it's just like an affirmation they already knew they were going to be doing the right thing and defending the temple because that word had gotten to them that what Nicanor did but not only that but you know the most high has your back so Judah Judas awakens and tells his troops of the vision and they too are encouraged to go out and battle against Nicanor's tremendous force the forces being um, large in number and including the elephants. And after offering a prayer, Judas engages 
Nick and Nora's troops. So they have a fight. They battle. And um, they go to battle. And it is a clear victory for Judas Maccabees. And mind you, um, a lot of Judas Maccabees' troops, they were fighting with their bare hands and with the prayers that they had sent out to the Most High. They didn't have the same type of access to weaponry that the Greek army had. So they were lower in numbers and they definitely didn't have the arsenal or the weapons to really put down this Greek army the way they did. It was only through the Most High's intervention that they were able to succeed and defeat Nicanor's army. And not only did they defeat Nicanor's army, but when they were going through the battlefield, they found Nicanor himself still in his um, still in the harness that he was riding the elephant in. Um, hold on. So many of Judas Maccabee's troops were fighting with their bare hands. Um, They're fighting with the prayers and and they so even though they only had their bare hands and their prayers, they still managed to kill no less than 35,000 men, according to 2 Maccabees 15.27. So it was truly, like I said before, it was truly a testament to the Most High, uh, being with Judas Maccabees and his men, that they were able to defeat Nicanor. And so after Nicanor's army, the, what was left of Nicanor's army, after they flee, they go through the battlefield and they find Nicanor's body still in Nicanor's body is still in the harness of the elephant that he was riding. So they are hardcore and they get his body um, and they cut, Judas himself cuts off Nicanor's head and his right arm. Remember, that's the same right arm he used to threaten to tear down the temple and erect a new one for Bacchus. Um, so he brings that right arm and he brings that severed head, head to Jerusalem, enters the temple precinct, and he calls for the priests to stand by the altar and shows them the head and the arm. And he declares that Nicanor, um, a blasphemer, should have his tongue, should have his tongue cut out and be fed to the birds which happens um, so that his tongue is cut out and fed to the birds and the priests react with relief um, and they say blessed is he who has kept his own place undefiled so the priests react with relief and say, Blessed is he who has kept his own place undefiled. 
So Judas hangs Nicanor's head on a tower, um, which is a clear and present sign to all um, the Judas then hung Nicanor's head on the tower and it was an evident and manifest sign unto all that saw it of the help of Yahweh and the greatness of his and the magnitude of his greatness and he declares the holiday um that would be in 2 Maccabees 15.36. I'll read it for you. 2 Maccabees 15.36. And they ordained all with a common decree in no case to let that day pass without solemnity, but to celebrate the 13th day of the 12th month, which in the Syrian tongue is called Adar, the day before Mordecai's which is Mordecai, the day before Mordecai's day. Um, and if you didn't know, Mordecai would be from Purim, which I'll be doing next. So this is, like I said, the one day directly prior to um, Purim. Um, and going in reference to what I just read, um, it says that this day is... But notice, like I said, there is no name given to this holiday it is just declared that we're going to remember the um what happened here but the solemnity it means a rite or ceremony performed annually with religious reverence so it's something that we're definitely supposed to um keep as something we're supposed to um have high regard to. Uh, the Hebrew word for solemnity, well, since this is um, in the Apocrypha, um, I didn't have a concordance to give you the exact definition, but generally when solemnity is used in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, it's going to be either kag So looking in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew solemnity is used, it's usually where the word kag or mawa'id kag is the same word that is used when describing other feast days and mawa'id meaning an appointed time, uh, which also refers to like our holiday celebrations and having them fall within um, the, the prescribed season. Um... So solemnities here seems to be like including in the sense of like anniversary. So we're doing it every year. So like I said, each year was just a celebrated feast day uh, and commemorate the events and retell the events so we know what happened. Um, like I said, it's the 13th day of the 12th month. Um, the 12th month is also called Adar. And... Some years we have 13 months, and so keeping it within the Mawa'id, if we have 13 months, it is going to be kept within its season, 
if you keep it on the 13th month instead of the 12th month. Um, that, like I said, that keeps it within its season, in its season, and that only happens every like four-ish, three, four, between three to five-ish years. Um, so it's it's something to keep in mind because if you're ever reckoning a calendar, um, you'll come across it and you'll be like, okay, do I do the 12th month, the 13th month? But if you want to keep it within its season, it's going to be the 13th month. Um, and so since this day was not given to us by the Most High, um, there's no precedent set for us um, breaking the Shabbat if the holiday happens to fall on a Shabbat. So if it comes on a Saturday this year, it's not. But if it were to come like on a Friday night to Saturday night, your option would be to cook a bunch of stuff on Friday and eat big on Friday night or and also, you know, have stuff that is easily eaten um, room temp or cold. So it probably wouldn't be the same kind of feast you would normally have, but you can still be festive with it. Okay, just get creative. So, a side note, Amalek or Esau, um, they don't normally celebrate this do, but if they do, they tend to fast. Uh, it's kind of more like they're putting it together with Purim since they fasted before Esther and went to, um, be like Esther fasted before she went to the king, so they're kind of putting it... Um, So they're kind of modeling it after that, okay? But um, we don't see that in the directions that it's supposed to be a fast day. It's supposed to be a, a, a commemoration. Uh, and like I said, you know, you, we saw that the, the, the priests were um, happy and relieved. So there was nothing to indicate that it was a fast day. Um, so that's it. That is Nicanor in a nutshell. Um, the history of it, where it comes from, who the key players are in it, and um, why we are supposed to celebrate it every year on the 13th day of the 12th month, which just happens to be the day before Purim. So next segment will be um, a retelling of Purim and why it is important and how to observe it. I just wanted to give you this quick segment to kind of bring you up to speed. Oh, I realized when I was editing the Esther segment that there was a lot of background noise um, and so I kind of wanted to explain, oh, and it sounds like I'm whispering. Um, I, true to my word, I was trying to record this, um, episode at any given opportunity. So it was middle of the night and I was moving around and, um, taking care of things in the house and tried to utilize that time. So... I start off in the house um, and that's why it sounds like a whisper because everyone was sleeping 
oh, oh, almost everyone. And then, you know, you hear the doors open and I was going um, out to the back. Back is enclosed. Um, and that's where you hear the water and the laundry. And you'll hear water going down. It's down a drain. It's not down the toilet. But it did sound a bit suspect. So I wanted to clarify that. I wasn't doing that much multitasking. But, oh, and yes, I wash clothes by hand. So that would probably be another question you have. Like, why is all that water? Yeah, I do my laundry by hand. Um, and it wasn't a full load, no, uh, in the middle of the night. It was just some things that had been soaking and I didn't want to leave them overnight. And so I hit them up. Uh, I hit them up in the middle of the night so they wouldn't sit overnight. Okay, so also I realized that I forgot to state that when Esther was fasting for three days, she also um, went to a high level of mourning and she um, she ripped out her hair. She put the hair that she had ripped out into um, the different spots within uh, her areas where that made her happy. Uh, presumably to remind her that she needed to be in a constant state of mourning and take this thing very seriously. She also um, had dung on her at one point. Doesn't say what kind of dung. And it also states, and this is all in the Apocrypha, um, it also states that she did not get into her royal attire unless she left her room. So within her room, she wore her mourning clothes. Mourning meaning, you know, uh, great despair and sadness. So she wore those clothes, which were not of royalty. Um, so I just wanted to give you this little insert to uh, kind of give you some insight and to add to what I had forgotten. Hope you enjoy the segment. Shalom, 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 Aquafian. This is take two for me. I'm Purim. I did the lesson while I was cooking. Got through the whole thing and realized about three minutes in, the recording had shut off due to some technical stuff with my phone. So here we go once again. Dealing with Purim. Purim is in the book of Esther. You can also find about six supplemental books. Um, for the book of Esther and the Apocrypha where you get a little bit more details as to the events that occurred that um, are now the reason that we have the holiday period. So this again is a civil holiday just like Day of Judas Maccabees. Uh, it was not given to us by the Most High. It was something that we initiated ourselves to do and to commemorate the interventions of the Most High this year. Uh, Hiram is a two-day feast every year, but this year it falls on February 23rd. That begins the first night from February 23rd to February 24th. That's the first day. Then from February 24th to February 25th. That's the second day at the end of February 25th that evening. And then Hiram is over. And your Judas Maccabees, 
Purim days are complete. It's all done. Uh, since these are civil days, it's not required that you have the day off, um, that you don't work. It's optional. If you want to work, you can. If you don't want to work and you got the time off, take the time off. Enjoy yourself. So let's get into the story. I'm going to try to do a repeat real fast. We begin with a, a lavish six-month party to celebrate the three years of reign for King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes or King Xerxes. They all are the same person. So at this feast, he decides he wants his wife, Queen Vashti, to come so everybody could see her beauty and she could be a part of his celebration. She refuses. She refuses to attend. So, you don't do that, right? The king calls. You don't come. That's not good. The king goes to his group of counselors, asks what he should do. They say, well, get rid of her. Get a new one. <laughs> Cancel her and get a new one. Essentially, they put out a decree saying that she was going to lose her estate, the crown was going to go to someone else, and she could not appear in front of the king ever again. One thing to note is that when the king issues these decrees, they are final. That is his word, his word is bond, there's no going back on his word, even if he changes his mind. So that's an important note to, an important detail to kind of stress because it comes into play a little later. I guess what you want to know is, well, why does he issue this decree? She just said, no, she didn't feel like coming. What's the big deal? Well, the fear was that if the queen did it to the king, then one, one it's disrespectful, and two, then any woman's going to feel like she could just disrespect her husband, and then they'd have like this unruliness of women uh, disobeying their husbands. So that was um, to set an example of her, to make an example of her. So you can read about that in Esther chapter 1 verse 20. The decree also states that all the virgins um, needed to come and present themselves in front of the king so he could choose his next queen. She too has to be brought to the capital of Persia as one of candidates and before she goes into the house of the king, Mordecai tells her, look, drop the name Padassa and use the name Esther. It's a good Persian name and it'll help you blend in more. Nobody will know that you're, you know, a Jew. If anybody has any problems, then, you know, it's not going to affect you because you're now Esther. And so that's what she does. So while she was there, this now we're in chapter two, as um, Mordecai, you know, kind of walks up and down the grounds trying to, you know, check on Esther, see if he can get any news, check, see how she's doing, because he adopted her, and so he's been like a father figure to her, and he, you know, wants to make sure she's doing okay. So to kind of sum it up, the virgins go into the one house where they stay for 12 months, and they prepare to meet the king, and in that preparation, they do um, six months of soaking in myrrh, and then six months of some other sweet oils to smell good and sweet for the king when they do meet him. Before uh, the night before they meet the king, or the day before they meet the king, they're allowed to um, select whatever they like to wear um, to make the, a good first impression. There was a Persian 
official that was appointed to kind of collect everybody up and take them to the king's palace. Among them was a Jewish girl. I believe she was from the tribe of Benjamin. And her name was Hadassah. And she is the niece or the cousin, just depending on which verse you look at, of Mordecai. So each night, when the, whenever night they get, the, um, the virgins meet the king. They spend time with him uh, that night. And then the next day, they go to the second house, which is the house where they keep the, keep the concubines. So note, he didn't just find Esther and say, oh, you're my queen. Now, all those females that he, that he had collected for him, he kept them. They were his property, and they were his concubines, and they might not have ever seen him again. They had to be called at his request to be seen. That's just how it was. So, um, in verse 15 of chapter 2, we get to Esther's turn, and Esther uses wisdom and she gets the inside scoop on what the king likes because she turns to Haggai who is the king's chamberlain and he's the keeper of the women um, and she entrusts his advice and to what to wear so I say she used wisdom because you know this is somebody who has some knowledge of what the king likes and doesn't like so you know, her first impression might have been a little bit stronger than some of the other girls because they didn't have that inside scoop and that inside advantage. In verse 16 of chapter 2, it talks about how Esther was taken to the king uh, in the 10th month, in the 7th year. So this is like three and a half years. For three, three and a half years-ish, or three years later, that all of this took place like everybody being gathered and you know like i don't think it must not happen all at one single time there was a gradual accumulation and everybody being taken and then they spent their year and then they met him and you know i'm sure it took time so this is in the seventh year she becomes queen she has his favor and she's now queen so kind of going to the subplot of the story mordecai learns of a a plot to kill the king um, and he goes to Esther and he stops the plot he stops it from happening um, between him and Esther it's written in the um, official transcript so that it's on public record that this happened the people that were trying to plot against the king they are I'm sorry I'm dealing with some laundry they um, are, are hung and so that becomes important later then um, Xerxes, he appoints Haman or Haman uh, to be his prime minister and Haman says that anybody that um, comes before him or you know when he walks by somebody they need to bow well Mordecai doesn't do that he's, he says in person he's about to is the most high so he makes Haman mad he's like this this Jew won't bow to me who does he think he is as a result Haman's got a backstory, he's got some issues, and he's got it out for the Israelites. And Mordecai disrespecting him like that doesn't help matters. And so Haman vows and makes it a point to get 
He wants to kill all the Jews, so he convinces Xerxes that that should happen. Xerxes is like, okay, cool, do what you gotta do. And so he, Xerxes, issues a royal edict that it goes throughout all of Persia and says that on the 13th of Adar, that's gonna be the day, the designated day to exterminate all the Israelites in Persia, in the Persian Empire. And not only can you exterminate them, but you can plunder their possessions. You can have whatever they have. So Mordecai gets a hold of the decree, and he's obviously very upset. He goes into mourning, he rips his clothes, he puts ashes on his body, and he sends, and all that's a sign of public mourning. He sends a copy of the decree to Esther and tells him, look, you've got to go to the king and intercede on our behalf to try to convince him not to do this. And Esther replies back that, look, she's like, look, if I go to approach the king without being called, that could be a death sentence. They can put me to death for that. And Mordecai's like, look, you got to do it. We don't got no choice. If you don't, we're all going to die. So she says, okay, have everybody fast for three days. Everybody, all, everybody uh, fast for three days. That includes the babies and everything, okay? So everybody that was a Jew or an Israelite fasted for three days uh, to accumulate virtue for Esther on Esther's behalf. And, you know, they prayed and they fasted that time um, so that King Xerxes would have favor with her and nothing would happen to him. At the end of three days, Esther goes to see King Xerxes um, unannounced and um, it worked. He, at first he was upset that she was there and then the Most High softened his heart and he put out his golden scepter and that was an indication that she was exempted from um, being put to death for showing up without being summoned. If, if, when you read in Apocrypha, she fainted a couple times. He's like, oh dear, what's going on? What do you need? Anything you want. And so that's when she said, um, you know, I need, I want you and Haman to come to um, a banquet I'll, I'll prepare for you. He's like, that's it? Okay, yeah, no problem. So they, she has the banquet. And at the end of the banquet, she's like, uh, you know what, let's do this again. And so she asked him, to, him, the king, and Haman to come for a second night, for a second banquet. And they said, yeah, okay. So rounding the corner to the end, um, Haman leaves and he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai doesn't bow once again and it infuriates Haman once again. And he goes home and talks, Haman goes home and talks to his wife. And like, what should we do? The wife comes up with the idea, you should hang him, build some gallows and hang him. And he's like, that's a brilliant idea. I'm gonna do that. So he has the, the gallows created for um, Mordecai to be hung on the next day. And he goes, meanwhile, <laughs> Um, before we get to the point where he goes to King Xerxes. Meanwhile, while all that's happening, Xerxes retires to his chambers and he can't sleep. So he has somebody go get the 
public records and read them off to him so he could fall asleep listening to it. And that's when he finds out that Mordecai saved his life. So he finds out that Mordecai saved his life and he said he wants to do something for him. So in the morning, when Haman's coming to talk to the king Xerxes about killing Mordecai, before he gets a chance to get that out, King says, hey, what should I, he's like, hey, what should I do for somebody that I want to honor? And Haman thinks that the king is talking about himself. Haman. He thinks he's talking about Haman. And he comes up with this, you know, dress him in fancy clothes, put him on the stallion, walk him around, talk about how great he is, everybody be able to bow to him, blah, blah, blah. And he thinks, yeah, that'll be great, y'all. Okay, that's the honor that I'll get. Well, the king says, good idea. Do that for Mordecai. You're in charge of that, making sure that happens. So needless to say, Haman is not happy that that honor he thought was supposed to go to him is now going to Mordecai, and now he has to walk Mordecai around and say how great he is. So, getting back to the second feast, so now, all that's taken care of. They go to the second feast, and so Esther comes clean that she's a Jew um, or an Israelite. She says that Haman is trying to kill her and her people, uh, which is uh, obviously includes Mordecai, and the king is furious that Haman is trying to kill his wife, right? So what he does is he orders he orders Haman to be killed being hung on the same gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. So Haman gets hung. Then Xerxes names Mordecai as his prime minister to replace Haman. And remember when I told you that once he issues a, de a, a decree, it can't be revoked? Well, that was the situation with the decree he had made for the 13th of Adar where all the Jews were supposed to be exterminated. He couldn't take that back. So... As a result, he issued a second decree, basically stating that the Israelites could defend themselves on the 13th when people were trying to, you know, kill them and plunder their belongings. They could fight back and there'd be no harm done to them. So that's what happened. The 13th came um, and the Israelites prevailed over Haman's army that was still executing the decree. and. Um, they were not exterminated. Therefore, oh, additionally, uh, in the midst of all that, or at the end of that, Haman's 10 sons were hung also. So they were all killed. And then that's when the 14th and 15th of Adar are um, designated to celebrate, to be celebrated each year. Uh, and they're called Purim. And it's to remember um, how the Most High interceded and how you know, we were the Israelites in Persia were supposed to be exterminated, and that didn't happen because of the Most High. Um, and Mordecai also says, not only you know issues the statement that this is supposed to be observed every year, but he also says how it's supposed to be done, and it's supposed to be done with a, a festive meal, the exchanging of uh, portions, which is gifts of food, and the giving of gifts to the um, poor. Found in Esther 9 verses 21 and 22. I'll read them real fast. 
Esther 9.21 says, to establish this among them that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Dar and the 15th day of the same yearly. As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. So like I said, the 14th and 15th of Adar each year, and again, just like with the day of Judas Maccabees, sometimes there are 13 months in a year to keep it in its season. Um, during those years, when there's 13 months, you'd keep it in the month 13, and that would help. Keep, that would keep it in its season. Furthermore, uh, I want to point out in verse 22, um, a lot of people see the word gifts and they look at it as a replacement for Christmas, and it is not that. If you want to give gifts, you can give gifts all year round, but um, um, sadly what happens is that people completely overlook the part where it says it's supposed to be gifts for the poor. So, you know, you can do gifts any time of the year, except Day of Atonement. Um, but specifically, these gifts, something, one of these days, you should be doing something, including the poor, um, and giving um, them the gifts, um, giving them the food. Because the idea was so that everybody could participate in the holiday. And it's not just, it just doesn't, Everybody can participate regardless of their financial status. So, please, please, um, you know, if it's not being brought up by your congregation leader, see if you can bring it up. See if you can incorporate the poor into your festivities. Uh, because that's what the word says to do. And so many times people completely overlook that part and they think, oh, the kids, oh, I'm going to have a gift exchange. Oh, I'm going to do, it's more of like a me, 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 kids, 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 replacement for Christmas, you know, get the, get my parents off my back or whatever the case may be, you know, so they can give the kids gifts then instead of doing it on Christmas and everything's all good. So that's my advice to you um i am going to wrap it up i got some stuff to do around here uh, so with that being said i'm going to say once again shalom lakam peace be unto you all ladies and shalom peace